Good morning, everybody. We are glad that you are here. Uh, we thank you for, for coming wherever you are in your journey of life and faith. My name is Dan Donald. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to bring to you this morning a reflection from the book of 1 John, which we have been looking at. We are now in uh, 1 John chapter 2, and we have been working through the book for the last couple of weeks, and here to help us with the reading of today's scripture is Kathy. So this morning's scripture reading comes from 1 John 2, verses 18 to 28. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are, not all, uh, they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has, has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as, it is, just as he has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have been uh, watching a show on Netflix recently. It's a reality show, as some of them are. And uh, this one has a bit of a unique perspective. It has divorcees trying to rebound after their divorce and uh, find new relationship again. And so uh, a number of couples are kind of eyeing each other and they're walking through what it means to live and to love after being hurt, rejected, betrayed, etc. And the question that they keep asking themselves is, is it worth it? One couple in particular, she's from Vancouver, he's from the East Coast, have a lot of distance between them. And... The question that keeps coming up, because he's pretty steady and she is not, is what's holding her back? And it seems to be pretty clear, as the show goes on, that her question is, is he worth it? It is indeed the question that every Christian in this world has to answer. Is he worth it? Because the obstacles in our culture and in our lives to following Jesus are many and they are challenging. This book recites some of those exact obstacles. This book invites us to ask and answer the question, is he worth it? Here in this part of the book, John has come back from his little diversion into not being friends with the world. That was last week. And John was very clear. Friendship with the world, love of the world is in opposition to the love of God. Do not fall in love with the world. It is a real and present issue. This week, he gets back to his issues that had faced these people of assurance. 
They had seen false teachers come in, split the churches that were involved in John's uh, pastoring, shepherding world, and probably 30 to 40 percent of the people had left, followed these teachers, started new churches, a whole bunch of new churches. They really split the community. And in light of the obstacles they were facing in the world and the obstacles they were facing from within, they were shaken. And so John's returning to try and assure them, but he's now added this sobering context of the division and the false teaching that has occurred among them, and he wants to say, let me talk again about my threefold test. One, do you have faith in Jesus? Two, do you obey his commandments? And three, do you love the community of faith. That's my threefold test by which you can know and be assured you are a Christian. Let me get back to one. Do you believe in him? But let me set the one in the sobering context of the world that is opposed to him and the division that is arising from within the ranks. The world is ruled by the enemy of God. We learned that last week. He is a liar, as Jesus says in John 8, when he talks to the religious elites, the Pharisees, and says to them, you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Therefore, the world is not to be trusted. False teachers are not to be trusted. They are to be expected, suspected, tested, and rejected. And when we've done all that, we are called here to abide, or perhaps a better translation of that Greek word, to remain. To remain in Jesus, because to remain in Jesus, says John, is to remain in God, and to remain in God is worth it. That is the point of this passage. John breaks down the argument in three ways. He says, firstly, realize what time it is. Secondly, recognize what power you have. Thirdly, remain. Realize, recognize, remain. Realize what time it is, verses 18 to 20. Here, John says, children, it is the last hour. Children is the church. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. John says something startling here. He says it is the last hour. John alone uses that language, but the New Testament is replete with that idea. Other authors, like the writer of Hebrews, call it this, these last days. Peter, when preaching to the people in Jerusalem, when tongues of fire broken out, called it the last days. John says it this way, it is the last hour. And I know it because many antichrists have come. Jesus has appeared, lived, healed, taught, done miracles, calmed seas, raised people from the dead, then died, and then risen, and shown himself to be 
not just a good teacher or a good rabbi, but the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. And as soon as the Christ is revealed, the antichrists which deny his fundamental identity arise. What time is it? It is the last hour. It is the final period of human history that was inaugurated by the coming, living, dying, and rising of Jesus. What characterizes this age, amongst other things, the rise of many antichrists, those who will deny that Jesus really is who he said he was, taught he was, showed he was, died for who he was, and rose to prove who he was. Jesus is the Christ. Now John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they were actually Christians in the first place, they would have continued, there's that word again, remained with us in believing in Jesus as he showed himself to us, described himself to us, and proved himself to be with us. If you don't remain with Jesus, says John, you never were with Jesus. This is John's comment, and it's our time, it's our moment to pause and reflect on this comment. The first thing I want us to reflect upon is those of us who are not yet Christians, we have heard in our cultural world that the amount of people who seem to be defecting from Christianity in modern society is proof, evidence, that Christianity is not true. People tend to think Christianity is an old superstitious religion that is passing away. It is outdated. This passage invites you to rethink that thinking. This passage says this pattern of people leaving the faith has been with the church since the beginning of the church. Church attendance amongst these churches was probably cut 30, who knows, 20, 30, 40%. The church probably numbered 10,000 people at the time. It would have been a devastating blow. And for skeptics, it would have been a sure sign that this religion is now going to pass away. How did that argument age? How many Christians are there in the world now? Two billion, by last estimate. For every notable person or scandal that seems to make a bunch of people leave Christianity, history has shown us that there are usually a hundred who have come to faith, just like that. Headlines in social media narrative tend to hide as much as they reveal then and now. So if you think that the present seeming decline in Christianity in our culture is any proof that it is not true, I think you need to rethink that thinking. Secondly, Christians. We tend to get discouraged when we hear about declining church attendance and the rise of false teachers from inside our walls. We hear about it regularly. But John wants to say, Welcome to the church. This has always been true. We tend to catastrophize our present difficulties, but our difficulties are not as new as we think and not nearly as catastrophic as we fear. Yes, there are some new wrinkles that we need to pay attention to. Yes, we need to understand the effect of technology on many things, including the Christian faith. But no, this is not the death knell of the faith. God has this 
men and women. He always had. Finally, when seemingly solid Christians leave the faith, we tend to get shaken and wonder if we too might be next. Almost every Christian I've talked to has found that seeing someone they know or someone they admire or someone they followed seem to walk away from the faith has made them doubt their own and wonder about their own future. Well, people can appear to lose their faith, yes. But what John says here is it was only an appearance. John says they went out from us because they were never part of us. And he's simply echoing the teachings of Jesus here. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just done a major miracle, several actually, called himself the bread of life after feeding thousands of people, done a miracle, but noticing unbelief around him despite the miracle, particularly from the religious elites. And he says this, I say, I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is his will, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is crystal clear. If you have been saved, you have been saved by the grace of God, and God doesn't ungive the grace that he gives. Jesus has you. He always had. He will never cast you out. So when I talk to Christians, I say, well, but I can cast him out, right? Think about that. God decided to grab you from all eternity, die for you, rise for you, put his spirit in you and hold you. He, he made those decisions and you think you can just reverse those? Listen to Jesus. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Men and women, can you snatch yourself out of the Father's hand? God's promise is greater than your fear. God's truth is greater than your anxiety. You cannot. John gives the definitive mic drop summary of this issue of assurance later on in this letter when he says in 1 John 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Realize what time it is. It is a time of false teachers. It is a time of people seeming to hold to the faith and then leaving it. It is a time of a hostile culture. Welcome to the church age. Welcome to the age of antichrists. Welcome to the age of hostility. You are still his. Once he has you, he always does. Secondly, recognize what power you have. John continues here and talks about an anointing. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? Sounds like Jesus. Who is the liar? 
but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. All right. John is saying here something rather startling, one that you may not have heard much in Christian churches. He says, you, all of you, have an anointing from the Spirit of God. In context, scholars are almost positive the Spirit of God is the Holy One here. And because of that anointing, you have all knowledge, or in some translations, you know all. Now, you don't have all knowledge. I personally only have about 99.5% of knowledge of string theory. (laughs) My wife has 100% of knowledge on how human relationships work. Go to her for counseling if you want. No, she's at the beginning of a journey. What they mean here isn't at all knowledge. But what John means is you have all the knowledge you need to have eternal life with God because you know Jesus and that's enough. He says, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has entered into you and given you a knowledge of the truthfulness of the truth of Jesus, the truth that Jesus really is God, that he really came down from heaven to human form, and he really died for you, and he really rose for you, and you really have forgiveness of sins. That's what you know. The Greek word for anointing here is charisma. Charisma is a, means anointing. Probably a pun on Christos, Jesus, the anointed one. You have charisma, so you can know the Christos fully. Christian, there's a kind of knowledge your mind gives you and a kind of knowledge that is directly imparted by the Spirit of God into you when you become a Christian. It is a spiritual kind of knowledge that is beyond the knowing of here that can fully assure you that you are God's child and that you know Jesus. Paul speaks of this idea well when he wrote in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans these words. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as children by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Apostle John here, like Paul, wants you to realize God has brought you to know him, but it's not purely an intellectual process. It's a spiritual knowing. It's a spiritual communion and assurance with God from his spirit to your spirit. It's a communion between his spirit and your spirit. Therefore, John implies you don't need false teachers or any such teachers to assure you that you know God. You heard the testimony about Jesus from the apostles. You believed it. You know what he said. You know what he did. You know that he meant all of what he said because he rose from the dead and the Spirit of God has now said to your spirit that you are his. And his you are and always shall be. There is a power in you that overcomes your fears and anxieties because it is given directly from the Spirit of God. Implications, firstly. If you're here and you are not yet a Christian, I want you to think about what it means to deny that Jesus is really God's Son, the Christ. You're not just an unconvinced agnostic. That's the context of our culture. I want to set it in a deeper context. God exists. He sent his son to show us he exists. 
He sent his son to show us what kind of God he is. That is the settled verdict of history. Your denying that is not mere, well, I want to keep a free, open mind. It's a denial of the truth, and you're a liar, according to John. Now, when you hear that word liar, it resonates back to Jesus, who called the devil a liar, because the devil was denying exactly that. And so what I want you to hear, and hear me carefully, if you're denying the truth of God when he said his son is Christ, and you're denying the claims and teachings of Jesus when he said he was the Christ, and you're denying the verdict of history when Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was the Christ, you are not merely doing something safe, inoffensive. You're denying the whole view of reality, the whole existence of God, the goodness of God. You are offending him. Don't take your denial of Jesus lightly. Because John says here, you will face the consequences. You will not inherit eternal life. Eternal life is the goal of life. And there are two paths. Two paths diverged into the wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. John is saying two paths diverge into eternity. Take the one Christ traveled by. It will make an eternal difference. You will go to heaven and be with God for eternity. Or you will deny him. And if you keep denying him, you will go to be without God for all eternity. Second implication flows directly from the first. It's found here in these words. It says here in verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. In our culture, it's very popular to say, I was talking to a staff member who was talking to some other people, and they said, oh, you know, all roads, all religious roads lead to the same God, don't they? Yeah, no. No, they don't. Not even close. If you want to know the true God, you meet him through Jesus. Because Jesus is God. If you know Jesus, if you know the Son, you know the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the true God. If you deny the Son, you have functionally shown yourself not to know the Father. Because the Father, the true God, is the God who has a Son. By the way, if you believe that all roads lead to God, go talk to any of the other religions, the other roads, and ask them what they think. If they don't slap you, they'll laugh at you because Islam doesn't believe all roads lead to God. Buddhism doesn't believe all roads lead to God. Hinduism doesn't. Judaism certainly doesn't. It's a Western progressive conceit that says, I can look outside of all these religious groups and tell them that they are all stupid. Someone rose from the dead. He's not stupid. He's wise. He's God. And he wants to tell you, not all roads lead to God. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's it.
I don't say this because I like being unpopular. I say this because the one who was crucified for saying it proved it was true. And I am a servant of truth. Final implication, yeah, third implication, and this is for all of us. What John is saying here is that you can't take the rough edges off Christianity and still call it Christianity. You can't deny that Jesus is God's son come in the flesh, died for our sins and rose again. You can't deny any of that, though we'd like to. Present-day Christian trends tend to skew progressive. We want to dull the edges of Christianity where it collides with the culture, the identity of Jesus, sexual ethics, other issues. We want a Christianity light. But I need to say, there is no diet Christ on the market for you to pick up and consume. There's no, I like Jesus' teachings about loving people, but I'll leave the rest of the stuff. There is only the real thing. You want Jesus? You have him, the original Jesus, with all the calories and all the caffeine. Sorry, folks. But all of his claims about being God, his difficult teachings about loving your enemies and about being sexually pure and killing greed and suspecting and purifying ambition, these you take the whole thing because Jesus isn't a drink. You don't get to choose diet Christ from the shelves. He is the one God who created the universe. He stepped into the mess of this world that we had messed up and we had created, and he allowed it to crush him, and he took the sins and the guilt of you and I upon himself. You can't get to God without the mess that is you being forgiven, and he is that way. Finally, and a quick final implication, salvation, men and women, is God's work from beginning to end. It's God who gave us Christ unconditionally into the world when we didn't ask for him. It's God who comes to you and I with his anointed spirit unconditionally when we're not asking for him. It is a gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot be simply convinced of it. At the end of the day, it's a free gift of God by the Spirit of God coming to your spirit, lifting the veil from your eyes so you see Jesus as he really is, and then finally want Jesus for who he should be to you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace, you've been saved through faith, and this, your faith, this Faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. That's the teaching in Scripture. John 6, 37, hear from Jesus' own words. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. As Jesus freely in history went to the cross, so the Spirit freely comes into our lives and applies the cross to our sin and removes it. Faith is a gift Thank God for it. Ask God for it. And understand you can't lose it. Know what time it is. Know what power you have. Finally, remain. Verses 24 to 28. Let what you heard from the beginning abide or remain in you. The Greek word can be translated either way. 
Um, it means to actively remain in the same place or status or condition for a long time. That's what the word meno means. And so what John is saying, what you've heard from the beginning, let it remain in you as the word of life. Let it stick. Get it down deep. Because then you will remain relationally connected and in communion with the Son and the Father. John is arguing here that communion with God, the triune God, is a function of continuing to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, or of God the Son, as I'd like to say it. You get a kind of life that the Bible talks about. We all live immortally. We will all live after we die. But some of us will live in perfect communion with God. That is what the Bible calls eternal life. It's the argument Jesus makes in John 15 when he says, Abide in me and I in you. Remain in me and I in you. Whoever remains in me and I in them, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. This is the argument of the scriptures. Remain. Actively remain. Remain in his love. Remain in his teachings. Remain in Jesus. Why? Why in a world of tempting distractions, the temptations of this world, the hostility, the division within the church, false teachers, why? Why do that? Because Jesus is not a set of teachings. He's not some kind of abstract deity. He's the God who created all things and then came into his creation to redeem all things by suffering all things. He came down into flesh and blood so people could see him, talk to him, hear him, look at him, touch him. They could smell him. That's how close he came to them. And the whole of the New Testament is rippling with this idea. One day he's coming back so that you for all eternity can have that tactile, real, visceral, visual seeing of him. The great hope of Christianity, men and women, is not a world free from evil, though that is a great hope. The great hope is that we will see him who made that pure world, who is purity and beauty itself face to face. For in his face of love, all things will fall away. In his face of joy, all needs will pass away. In his face of delight in you, all securities will dissolve away. And all questions of identity will be answered forever. The reality TV series ends with these two. The woman from the West Coast, from Vancouver, the man from New York City. His love has melted her reserve. They have started dating, but he wants to continue it towards marriage. And then we realize why she's been so hesitant. Her previous marriage ended in divorce because her previous, her ex-husband's family were very, very hard on her. They were toxic. Her husband tried to mediate, but in the end he just got weary of facing the parents' discontent with who he had married. And he said, just put up with it. And she couldn't put up with it anymore. So she finally stopped talking to them except to her husband and then finally they ended it. 
And in its place became fear, fear of that happening again. The scene I will never forget is the scene near the very end. She is still completely ambivalent about moving on. And he says, let's FaceTime my parents. And she's totally nervous. And she explains in a sidebar interview of how the in-law's previous experience had completely made her anxious and afraid. The mother comes on. We don't see her. All we see is the woman. And her, her smile is so nervous. She's so anxious to please. She is ready to bolt. And the mother says, hold on. I'm going to walk in and introduce you to the dad. He's sick. Didn't think he'd be on the call. Didn't expect this. The dad gets on, and you can hear in his voice joy. You can almost hear a smile in his voice, but what is magnetic is the camera zooms in on her, and her fearful, hope I can get through this smile, starts to melt. And she starts to smile because the love that the Father is pouring out is melting her. And she literally starts to glow in the middle, and it just, all you see is her face light up. At the end, she said her willingness to marry again went from zero to 60 or 70 percent. The phone call was three minutes. What happened? She liked this guy, but she didn't know what it would be like to be part of the family, and it scared her to death. Too many of us as Christians, like Jesus, are attracted to Jesus. But we're kind of afraid that God the Father up there is like the nasty in-law. And Jesus can mediate for us for a time. But men and women, what it says here is that Jesus is going to introduce you to the Trinity. And it's not going to take three minutes. It's not going to take three seconds, three milliseconds of experiencing their delight and their pleasure and their joy in having you as one of their children, as part of their family, will melt all your reservations and all of your fears. You will see them as they really are, and then you will see Jesus in a new way, the transforming, delightful, gracious, eternally beautiful God who's part of the Trinity and you will glow and you will say he's worth it they're worth it God the triune God who comes to us in Christ is worth it remain let's pray Father thank you for this time thank you for the truth of your word help us to realize that we are called to remain in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. We, uh, we don't have time for Q&A, so I will take a look at your texts and answer them accordingly. But please rise as we respond. <laughs>